Good afternoon and welcome to this week's episode of Long Story Short. We are live from the World Bank Press Lounge in Washington, D.C. I'm Kate Middenwathen here with journalists Sophie Edwards and Michael Igo to talk about some of the big themes that are going on during this year's spring meetings. Sophie and Michael, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us. Yeah. All right, so we're going to talk about a big thing on everyone's minds. It's made a lot of news. Are the conversations around this capital increase? The World Bank has requested a $13 billion capital increase from its shareholders, the biggest shareholders, of course, the U.S. What is going on in these negotiations? We'll start with you, Michael. Sure. Yeah, so this is the issue, I think, that has really kind of overshadowed the spring meetings. And it's been an issue for the last couple of meetings uh, here at the World Bank and IMF. So basically, Jim Kim, President Jim Kim of the World Bank, is making the case that the institution is being asked to do so many different things, to work on so many different issues. There's so much demand for its services in developing countries that they need more capital, capital to lend, capital to engage in projects and programs around the world. And he's making that case to shareholders who are assembled here this week and will be talking this weekend. What are some of the things that the U.S. in particular is asking for, are asking for? You published a story about this earlier this week that's generated a lot of buzz here at the bank. Yeah, so we don't know every detail of the deal that is reportedly on the table. We're told there's a deal. Jim Kim talked about it this morning in the press conference. Um, but in exchange for potentially granting the World Bank more capital, donors like the U.S., and the U.S. is not alone. There are other countries that hold similar opinions want to see some efficiency gains. They want to see the institution showing that it's taking strides to cut down on costs internally at the same time that they're taking on more money to use externally. And what, what do those efficiency gains look like? That <laughs> no, sounds very, very vague. Yeah, it's a, a, a bit of a, a jargon there. I mean, the one that we've reported on, we had a story out yesterday, uh, is that the U.S. shareholders feel, the Trump administration feels that uh, World Bank's salaries are too high. So that, that announcement uh, made through DevEx uh, has caused a little bit of a, a wave throughout the World Bank. And what they're, what they're looking to do um, as part of this deal is to sort of curtail the size of raises, salary increases on an annual basis here at the institution to kind of bend the curve so that eventually World Bank's salaries uh, grow slightly less than they usually have. I mean, to be frank, with this White House, we've seen a lot of chaos and a lot of, you know, things that get leaked or come out. It's hard to kind of make sense of them or it's easy to kind of react with skepticism. Is this an unreasonable ask, though? I know we've heard from a couple different experts weighing in. Yeah, it's, I mean, obviously, that quest the answer to that question is different depending on whom you ask for World Bank staff, you know. Um, this is something that strikes very close to home. And, and uh, I spoke with the chair of the staff association, association here at the World Bank who pointed out that this is a, a workforce that is asked to do really diff difficult things, to work in really difficult contexts like fragile states. Um, and so saying, you know, you don't deserve the sorts of salaries and salary increases uh, that we've all decided you should have based on this formula that's been set, um, you know, that sends a message to staff, and I think that they've, at least their representatives in the staff, staff association have bristled at that. Others point out that, you know, World Bank salaries are not too shabby, um, and that it might be reasonable to take a look at some of the formulas that are, that are guiding them. Sure. So we should know more about where this is going in the coming days, in the next week, and what's the timeline 
before we know what happens with this capital increase? So um, everything sort of comes to a head on Saturday. That's when the development committee meets. Uh, the development committee, committee is the, the bank's board of governors, uh, the sort of representatives of the shareholding countries. And they'll come out with uh, a communique at the end of that meeting, which lays out uh, kind of their intentions and their guidance for the institution going forward. From the sounds of things, there is not likely to be a concrete decision on the capital increase deal uh, by the end of these meetings. It's probably going to go a little beyond that, but we should have a better sense of uh, what the contours of that deal look like by the weekend. Sure, so we'll be keeping on top of that. Look out for more on devx.com and on our social media, shameless plug. Yes. Uh, there is a second capital increase that we are looking at. It looks likely that the International Finance Corporation, the private sector arm of the World Bank, may also be getting a capital increase. Sophie, could you talk a little bit about what that means, what it looks like, why now? Yeah, no, it's, um, it's pretty exciting. I think the IFC hasn't had a capital increase for about 16 years, so it's potentially overdue for one. The World Bank had one in 2010, but not the IFC. Um, and I think there's a feeling that um, that if they get it, and it would be, as the FT's been recording, it would be 5.5 billion, um, it would really bring it up to sort of a level playing field with the World Bank, whereas... 5.5 billion. Uh -huh. Whereas in the past it was, you know, about kind of operating at about the third of the size, it would, it would put it on a par with the bank, which could raise some interesting sort of power dynamics between the President Jim Kim and Philippe Leroux, who's the CEO of um, IFC, um, and Kristalina Georgieva, who's head of IBRD. Um, but it's also sort of significant because I think there's a sense that IFC four or five years ago would never have got this kind of increase or wouldn't be considered for it, partly because I think what we sort of hear from sources is that there wasn't really a great relationship between the IFC management uh, and the board of governors and the executive directors. Um, there were like concerns that IFC wasn't prioritizing uh, development impact enough, it was going off to profit more. Um, and that is obviously, um, if they get the increase, that would indicate that um, this has really changed. And these are some things that um, Philippe Lehuru has sort of put in place uh, in his tenure over the last couple of years. So he's sort of been introducing new ways of, um, of taking, um, of deliberating over projects and deciding whether they get passed or not, uh, and putting much greater emphasis on development impact um, as well as you know, profitability. Because obviously the IFC has to balance its books and make some money to keep going. But um, there's a sense that, that development is much more at the center of it now. So it would be initiatives like that. And also, you know, perhaps even to some extent, the personality of Mr. Haru himself, who used to work at the bank. So he's not a, an investment banker, which is sort of the usual background of, a, of an IFC head um, that could also be helping to sort of bring the, bring the board round to the IFC in a way that it wasn't before. You know, this feels, um, this balance between having to make money and looking at development outcomes seems indicative of the wider conversation and concerns around private sector engagement and development that our business priority is ever going to be able to be re reconciled with development outcomes. Do you see this as indicative of a larger shift in international development towards being more on board with private sector financing? Uh, maybe I'll go first and then Michael come in. Yeah, I mean, the. The World Bank's um, maximizing finance for development. The whole mantra that's come out in the last couple of years is all about, you know, we have to bring private sector to the table. There's just not enough money. Uh, it's going to be impossible without it. Um, so sort of now, you know, how do we do it? And in terms of operationalizing that, the cascade approach is sort of is sort of the nuts and bolts, which is sort of about the World Bank's different actors. So that's 
you know, it's lending arms within the bank, the IFC and also MEGA, which is sort of more of the risk insurance arm. How do we work better together to make sure that um, we're kind of like bringing in private sector wherever possible? So instead of in the past, maybe, you know, the bank might have done a might have done lending for a project like a building an airport, for example, is the, is the example that, that Jim Kim always uses. Um, now we'd be seeing a policy in which the private sector is brought in and, and it's incentivized through some work done by ISC, some guarantees by MEGA, and also like policy work done by the bank as opposed to actually lending work so to create a better enabling environment and make it more attractive to the private sector. So that's sort of the new approach. And I think it's raising some concerns among um, civil society actors, Oxfam for example, about, you know, but are there some things within this that the private sector shouldn't be involved in? Education, for example, or health, or should at least have limited involvement with very strong oversight because, you know, can you necessarily rely on the private sector to be putting the interests of the most marginalized or the poorest first, for example? Well, I think that that's a really great point and kind of segues into the broader question of how does this overall pivot toward looking at private financing for development fit into the bank's other priorities like human capital? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, obviously the bank is looking for sources, recognizing the challenges that are out there, the investment needs, and looking for as many sources of ways to fund those needs as possible. And so there's the the capital increase that we talked about. There's this sort of broad agenda of maxi maximizing finance for development and looking at the, the private sector. Um, and then a third sort of financing source that I think is worth mentioning is domestic resources. And the bank is really um, looking to countries to raise their own domestic revenues so that they can start investing more in their own populations, in their own human capital. Well, Jim Kim said something about this this morning during the press conference that he was hoping that countries could bring about as much as 15% of their GDP through taxes. Is that the kind of finance that you're talking exactly. about? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so it was interesting to hear him put a, a specific number on it. Um, maybe he's done that before, but um, I'm not aware of a specific recommendation. And what he said was that, there, that countries should aspire to, um, to get to a, a tax-to-GDP ratio of 15%. And, you know, if you look around the developing countries, many of them are well below that. Um, some are, are right around that level. I spoke to the Minister of Finance from Ghana yesterday, and I think they're at uh, 16 or 17, 16 percent, I believe. But then, you know, some of Ghana's neighbors like Nigeria are still below 10 percent. And when you're talking about, you know, raising tax to GDP ratios from something like 10 percent to something like 15 percent, I mean, that is a huge amount of money. Um, so the bank and, I should say, the IMF are really um, spending a lot of time and effort and expertise on trying to get countries to the point where they can be both raising more revenue through taxes, um, but also uh, spending it efficiently and spending it on things that relate to development goals, the sustainable development goals, um, but countries' own you know, development strategies. And so one initiative uh, that's sort of in the works now and we understand will be more concretely forthcoming at the annual meetings in Indonesia in the fall uh, is a human capital index and a lot of folks out there might be familiar with the bank's doing business report that exists it's kind of similar to that but um, less of a focus on private sector investment so the, the doing business report ranks countries according to how 
sort of friendly they are to private investment. The idea behind the human capital index is it will be a similar ranking that shows where countries fall in terms of their investments in their own human capital. So investments in health and education, uh, things that are designed to prepare their workforces for the jobs of the future, to educate their citizens and to make sure that those are, are healthy uh, citizens as well. So um, that ranking is, I, I think, something that we'll be looking at and it will be interesting to see what consequences and impact that specific tool has. Yeah, certainly. And something that I think ties together both this human capital, investing in human capital conversation and the private sector conversation are like, ideas around PPPs that help invest in health and education. Sophie, you came out with a story yesterday that had to do with some unintended consequences of a public-private partnership in Pakistan. Could you talk a little bit about what the concern was on the part of civil society and what you've learned about that case specifically? Yeah, sure. Um, and I mean, PPPs are have been a sort of controversial topic for a while. They, they came up at the last meetings as well. And there's basically just like a fear that um, sort of a red carpet is being rolled out for the private sector as part of PPPs, that government is taking on too much risk and that private sector are just getting a really easy deal. That's sort of like the, the kind of broader narrative. Um, and the bank sort of has come out with guidance helping countries to structure PPPs. And there's, uh, there's lots of criticism from civil society that those yeah, are, are not really doing enough for governments and they're doing too much for, for the private sector. Um, the story that, that I wrote the other day was um, very specifically on some Oxfam um, research into uh, education PPPs in uh, Pakistan, and there's actually there's, there's a, a wealth of, of activity in that sector in Pakistan, um, and they were sort of concerned that they weren't really working for the most marginalised, uh, that poor kids weren't being able to go to school, that um, the results-based financing mechanisms around it were incentivising teachers to teach to a test. Um, and to even exclude students that they thought wouldn't score very highly. Um, so that was sort of the, the main fears around that. And that speaks to the broader question of, again, as we touched on earlier, like private sector engagement in these sort of public goods like education and possibly like health as well. And an ongoing sort of saga at these meetings and, and the last couple I've been to has been around um, IFC investment in one private sector education actor, in particular Bridge International Academies, which has just become a total lightning rod for this debate about, you know, should private companies be involved in, in education? And I've written a lot about that, and, um, and it's a really interesting... Our, for our viewers at home who might not be as familiar with some of the concerns and challenges with Bridge International Academies in particular, could you talk a little bit about what what the concerns are around private education, even if not specifically about Bridge, but what are some of the kind of adverse outcomes that might oh, yeah. be brought I mean, up? It, at some level, it's a, it's a very broad ideological argument of, you know, education's a public good. We have a universal declaration on the right to education. It should be delivered by governments, not by private actors. Um, that's sort of the, the basic level. And then when you go down, it's more, you know, private sector actors aren't necessarily incentivized to, to deliver it in the same way that the government would. Um, so there's fears around you know, cutting corners, for example, uh, excluding the poor children or, or children who, you know, due to disadvantage, aren't performing as well. You know, private sector doesn't necessarily have an incentive to keep them in the schools, whereas governments 
government-run and government-managed system would. Um, so that's sort of the fear, and there are fears around accountability as well, um, especially in countries where the rule of law is, is weak and governance is weak. Um, if you have private actors running schools, is there any accountability? Can the government really be managing them properly? So it's concerns like that. Broader issues around, as you say, um, general global public goods. Michael, did you have something to say? Yeah, just on the, on the PPP front, there's an interesting dynamic that I just wanted to sort of point out recently. You know, we're here at the World Bank, but this is actually the World Bank IMF spring meetings, um, the two institutions kind of co-hosting these events. And one thing that, that I've noticed and that I think has been fairly intentionally communicated um, in the last year or, or maybe longer than that uh, is the IMF highlighting its role as a development actor. And one of the regions or, or topics in which they're doing that is in capacity development for countries around PPPs. And it's getting exactly to some of the issues that Sophie was talking about. How are countries doing the analysis necessary to be able to structure a deal with the private sector that's fair to them, that's adequately uh, benefiting them and the, the goals that they've set and not leading to situations where you might have private, sex, private sector exploitation of public resources. So it's been interesting to see the IMF kind of branding itself as a development institution. And um, you know, I wonder if we might find ourselves covering the IMF a bit more consistently in these meetings and, and uh, throughout the year as they, as they make that more visible. Yeah, that is an interesting shift. And you, a second ago, you were talking about capacity building and resilience, and some of these themes feel like a bridge to another major topic of conversation here at the meetings, which is around fragile states. Um, I have many questions about this, but if anyone tuning in right now has questions that they would like answered, please feel free to drop them in the comments and we will try our best. Um, can you, fragile states has really been kind of booted to the top of the priority list, it feels. I don't remember hearing that much about it in the past and all of a sudden, every day, there is at least one event around fragile states. Um, can you talk a bit about why, why now for fragile states and what we should be looking looking at? Yeah, of course. Um, you're right. It's it's risen on the agenda. I, I mean, I think it's the, if you're talking about the World Bank's twin goals of eradicating extreme poverty and boosting shared prof prosperity, uh, fragility, conflicts, and violence are really the giant elephants in the room. Um, the World Bank's own research says that by 2030, 60% of the extreme poor will be living in fragile states. There's just no way for this institution to accomplish what its mandate is to accomplish uh, without focusing in places of, uh, that are characterized by fragility. So I think they've responded to that fact. They've responded to their own research and analysis. Um, I had the opportunity to speak with the, the bank's director for fragility, conflict, and violence. Uh, last week, and we published the story on, on DevEx today, they're amping up funding uh, from $7 billion to $14 billion through the International Development Association, which is the fund for um, poorest countries. Um, but the bank is also trying to put more people on the ground in fragile states. I think they, they have a target of 150 staff in fragile states um, over the next couple of years. Um, so it's really, it, I think it's a, a shift in the institution's operating model such that it can operate in situations where we're more used to seeing humanitarian organizations and 
UN agencies, um, and the World Bank in many cases is partnering with those organizations in ways that we haven't really seen before. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting that you, that you catch it as the World Bank, or not you, but that the World Bank is talking about putting more people on the ground in these other countries. Because in some of the conversations that have happened here, the, the key element of how do we move forward on fragile states is about ownership. Um, what, what does that mean in the reporting that you have done? Yeah, well, in speaking specifically to this topic with the leaders who are working on it here, I mean, I think they are very um, adamant in pointing out that putting more World Bank staff on the ground does, does not mean that the World Bank is making decisions about what countries that are, you know, embroiled in conflict should be doing. Um, this is an institution that fundamentally works through governments. That's sort of the very nature of the World Bank. Um, but that's a challenge in, in fragile states where, you know, you might not have a, a government with a strong ministry of health that's capable of reaching all different aspects of the population. Um, so I think they, they continue to, to maintain that focus where they're working in partnership with governments and doing whatever they can not to bypass those institutions, but instead to build them. Uh, but at the same time, I think uh, what the focus on fragility has driven at the World Bank is much more partnership with, with UN agencies and humanitarian organizations, um, so that the bank is coming in earlier at the same time that those organizations are operating and starting to make development investments uh, that will pay dividends You know, as countries sort of move through a, a spectrum from um, trying to prevent conflict to unfortunately moving into conflict and then eventually reconstruction. So, you know, I think the institution is looking at its role in each of those different phases and looking for opportunities to partner with whomever is available um, at those different points as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that very much speaks to the sentiment that we heard World Bank CEO Kristalina Georgieva say yesterday. She was asked, you know, how do you make fragile states more fragile? And she said, be there, stay there. More resilient, I hope. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. How do you make fragile states less fragile? Yeah. <laughs> be there, stay there. Yeah. Um, we are, we only have a few minutes left, but we would be remiss if we did not segue into talking about women, which feature heavily in the agenda this year's spring meetings, um, whether it's gender, gender data or women's economic empowerment. What, you know, there are sort of obvious reasons why this might be a broader focus. Do we think that it's the global conversation happening around Me Too, Time's Up, you know, global dev women? that is precipitating this, or is it something else that's been in the works a long time? Sophie. Sophie's been covering a lot of these initiatives yeah. as well. Um, no, I think it's, it's been in the works for a long time. I think they're very clear um, with economic um, and obviously moral arguments for empowering women, uh, but businesses have started to get on board. Actually, Christine Lagarde from the IMF has been a real champion of this as well. Um, so I, th I think it would have been here anyway. Obviously, the, the Me Too movement and things like that has, has probably given it you know, it's probably affected more the how many women on panels and things like that. But but the meet I think would have been here anyway. And um, we're expecting an announcement. Well, an announcement came out today, and then there'll be a session on Saturday that um, WeFi or WeFi, which is um, the Ivanka fund, the Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter's inspired fund that that we wrote a couple of stories on uh, last year. Um, that has announced its first three uh, grants. 
which oh, and what are those? This is, this topic was very very much top right. of mind and very <laughs> sexy for everyone at the yeah. last meetings we were at. Um, yeah, Ivanka Trump was here so, uh, talking about it, launching yeah. it. What are the three funding streams going to be? Well, so just as a, a quick recap, um, WeFi is it's uh, currently three hundred and forty million dollar financing facility. It's backed by fourteen different um, countries, and its job is to um, work with women-owned enterprises in. Uh, at least 50% of the money is supposed to go towards uh, either country, so sort of the most fragile countries. And so the first grant, it's 120 million pot, uh, and the money is going mostly to actually the World Bank, uh, and the I split between the World Bank and the IFC, um, also the Asian Development Bank and the Islamic Development Bank. And at the moment, it's to support existing projects that they have working in this area. And we should have more information uh, on this on Saturday, and we'll be reporting on that, so obviously look out for that. And beyond the women's economic empowerment, there are also a number of sessions centered on gender data um, and women's participation. Any any ideas about what we can expect from those or what this says about general priorities within the bank? It's a huge priority. That's really all I could say. I went to a session yesterday at the IMF about gender budgeting, so we'll, we'll be writing something about that that was very interesting, just sort of you know, how to actually make sure that um, gender policies really get on the agenda of, of ministers of finance and get translated into policy and policies that stay. So when there's a change of government, the policies are still there and how to sort of mainstream gender priorities throughout yeah, all government, cross government departments. Just add very quickly, I mean, I would echo exactly what, what Sophie said that um, with a lot of these issues at the spring meetings, there's an opportunity to make sure that they're on finance ministers' agendas. That's who's here. Um, and I think where the bank is playing a unique role on issues like women's empowerment, um, gender-based violence, um, gender-based violence against LGBTI populations. I was at an interesting event on that topic. What the bank can do that a lot of others can't is provide the economic research that makes those compelling cases to finance ministers as to why they should be prioritizing these issues that, you know, they might be, frankly, given to thinking of as sort of social issues that are outside of their domain. The bank is putting kind of the economic muscle behind, you know, no, these are, yes, they're social issues, they're issues of politics and equality, but they're also fundamentally economic issues that you need to tackle if your economy is going to realize its potential. So that's sort of a theme, I think, that, that always resonates uh, at these meetings. It's interesting, the broader pivot, I would say. You hear about things like women's issues or refugee issues or the two that come to mind where they used to be talked about kind of as a development problem and now they're being recast as development opportunities. Um, do you, are you getting that sense as well? I feel like those kind of draw a connection in my mind. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, the, the big example that comes to mind is the bank's creation of this global concessional financing facility for refugee hosting countries. And with that, um, this institution sort of looked at what Jordan and Lebanon in particular, in particular were doing on behalf of the global community by opening their borders to refugees from Syria and elsewhere. Um, and they, uh, you know, they they made a case that because those countries were willing to take on that challenge and willing to um, provide a global public good uh, to the rest of the world, that they needed to make that an economic opportunity and they needed to make some of the World Bank's development 
mechanisms, development tools available to those countries in new ways. So they created some flexible financing options that have allowed um, Jordan and Lebanon uh, to look at their refu refugee populations and think about how, uh, how the issue of hosting refugees can fit into a, a development agenda that benefits not just the refugees, but also their own uh, you know, populations that were there before the crisis. So that's an interesting example, I think. Yeah, I mean, hearing two things there. One is looking at building these things into development priorities. It also reminds me of yesterday at the Center for Global Development, the former president of that think tank, Nancy Birdsall, said, she has said many times before, global public goods will always be underfunded, but we need to fund them and find innovative ways to do that. All right, we have covered a lot. We have covered the capital increase, human capital, you know, private sector, money, women, fragile states. Uh, in about 30 seconds, any other big um, topics that you're watching this week? Um, I read a piece this morning about corruption, efforts to crack down on corruption. That was a really interesting panel, including with a former public prosecutor of South Africa who had worked on um, the Gupta investigations. Um, so the bank's obviously starting to think really hard about this and I guess that is obviously crucial to discussions about domestic resource mobilization. It's great to raise all that money but you know how do you prevent state capture and, and things like that. So that's something probably to watch out for. Yeah, I mean I think the big issue is related to the capital increase but it's the question of whether as a sort of condition of getting that money this institution is going to have to go through another challenging reform process to find efficiencies and budget cuts and um, you know that if that is the case it'll be it'll be uh, something that we'll be following really closely it'll have implications for staff implications for projects um, and I think you know could be a one of the bigger narratives of the rest of, of Jim Kim's tenure as president so you know that's kind of the remaining <laughs> there are a few elephants in the room that's that's one of them um, and hopefully we'll learn more this week. A lot to look out for. Michael, Sophie, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you at home for joining me. If you want more about the World Bank Spring meetings, you can sign up for our special edition newsletter. If you go to twitter.com slash devx, you can sign up there. It's pinned right to the top. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Be sure to follow Michael and Sophie for the latest from the meetings and all things development. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks.